it doesn't matter what you like if you choose the bilateral squat like in your head you just have to know that your intent of prescribing that exercise is to get the outcome that you desire not just I need to squat this person because that's what I do as a strength conditioning coach is I load people up and moving more weight will, you know, get some outcome and they'll be stronger and yeah, that will make them a better runner. You know, it has to be like, we have to take something and dial it down and really start thinking and defining what we're doing it or viewing it in a certain way and getting out of these kind of gross categorizations that have really come from, like I said, other sports. With, you know, with someone that looks a little bit too vertical, that isn't really like falling effectively and producing horizontal force effectively. It's like, you can kind of tell that by watching someone jog on a treadmill and that might already bias me into thinking, you know, an individual like that might actually do very well with a rear foot elevated split squat to teach them to fall a little bit more and propulse a little bit more effectively. Hmm. And then the converse would be true if someone's falling forward a little bit too much, might be worthwhile to elevate the front foot. That was Michelle Bolin and Tim Richard. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of the show. It's awesome to have you guys here. And we're gonna get into all things exercise categorization and critically looking at the elements of our training program. I know that this show does go in waves sometimes and a wave we've been on recently is kind of just re-looking at or critically looking at many of the the main exercises, specifically the big lifts like the squat and asking us why are we doing this the way we're doing it and what differences does it make when we do, for example, a low bar back squat versus squatting in a phone booth like Ty Tyrell talked about on a recent episode. What's happening uh, to an athlete on many levels, the, the pelvic floor, the pelvic diaphragm, pressurization, distribution of forces, load in a, and explode paradigms when we make a switch like that. So in the spirit of classifying exercises and really digging into knowing exactly what and why we're doing it, we have on Michelle Boland and Tim Richard, uh, who are going to talk deeply and extensively about why do we have what we have in the program. So before we get any farther, Michelle Boland is the owner of Michelle Boland Training. She has several years of experience working as an NCAA Division I strength coach where she has worked with top-ranked national teams as well as a wide variety of sports. Michelle is a leader in the integration of concepts that are rooted in some of the more advanced principles and schools of thought out there in the world of exercise and fitness today. And she does a tremendous job integrating the leading resources in the field today. Michelle previously appeared on the podcast on episode 108, where she spoke on functional performance training based off PRI or postural restoration ideals and more. Tim Richard is a physical therapist and certified strength and conditioning specialist who has been a competitive runner and strength training junkie since the age of 14. Tim has an awesome blend on knowledge in all things running, rehab, gait, and strength training principles. His own personal journey through injury and rehabilitation, hip surgeries, his hats in physical therapy and with his strength and conditioning experience, his running experience really gives him this unique blend in meshing those those elements and those areas together in creating a program on that rehab to high performance spectrum. So for the show today, we are going to, as I mentioned before, get into all things uh, exercise categorization and knowing exactly why we have a certain movement or element in the program. 
so often uh, many of us do have systems where we have uh, various assignments, perhaps uh, pushes, pulls, squats, hinges, reaches, and various elements. And today we're going to get into Michelle and Tim. Where did they start in a program? What are they looking for first that will define the structure of what they are assigning to an athlete? In addition to this, we also get into adjustment of the lifts based off of biomechanical presentations. Uh, we're going to get into what performance-driven se uh, sessions actually look like, as well as just going through the general evolution of Michelle and Tim's uh, programming and approach to exercise assignment in their own, both their own training and then coaching careers. This is one of those episodes that definitely makes you think, and it has a lot of really awesome inferences, applications, and I think it can really help all of our critical thinking process as we go down the road and path of refining, tweaking, and updating those things in our program that can give maximal transfer to the athlete and their goals. Let's get on to the show, episode 224 with Michelle Bolin and Tim Richard. Michelle, Tim, welcome to the show. It's awesome to have you guys here today. So let me start with this. What is your main fitness love? Lifting, sprinting, running, and what have you been learning from it lately? <laughs> Who's going to go first? We're all, we're all pointing to each other. Um, so I would say currently in my life, I'm trying to find the best way on how fitness can fit into my lifestyle. And I had a great conversation with a close friend of mine a few months ago in the beginning of quarantine, and he happens to be on this podcast. And, and we were talking about, you know, what do we enjoy? What are we, what our body's good at? And then how we've kind of found ourselves, this is my interpretation of the conversation, like found ourselves in the realm of like diving in a little bit on the side of what we think we should be doing as like trainers in terms of like heavy loading, lots of volume kind of activity. And like both of us kind of have the same body types where like we're kind of built for endurance activities and we actually feel better and enjoy that type of activity. And I was a big trail runner in college and I was, I just absolutely loved it. And, you know, then I realized, you know, why aren't I doing that? And, you know, after I do all these like heavy lifting and I'm probably holding on to probably like 20 pounds of muscle because of all that heavy lifting that makes me feel kind of drained after I perform that type of activity in the beginning of the day. So, you know, all this quarantine stuff happened. I started to do more resistance exercise in terms of like circuit based activity and building up my endurance level, walking a little bit more. And then I got back into trail running. I've been doing that probably at least three days a week now. And I've just found myself like enjoying fitness a lot more. So that's kind of like where I've ended up, I guess you could say. It's funny that Michelle brings up that conversation because I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we had that conversation as I was driving from Boston to move back to Colorado. So it's kind of like a, a transformational conversation happening at a transformational point in life as is. But I would echo a lot of what Michelle said that I think I found myself chasing barbell deadlift numbers or barbell back squat numbers for no good reason other than based on, you know, the field I'm in, strength conditioning, physical therapy, it just kind of felt like the thing that I ought to be doing. And it seemed like it was really detracting from the things that I really, really loved and, you know, got back into uh, track a few years ago as, as an older adult, as a, as a 30 year old, I should say, but that, that really 
was the thing that I wanted to filter everything through. Like Michelle brings up the question, what is this all for? And I think, you know, as an athlete, as a coach, as a therapist, being able to really auger down and answer that question in an authentic way is a good way to experience training happiness. So I think, you know, these days I have a year and a half Australian shepherd. I live near a big wide open park and we go out there and I'll do 10 or 15, about 110 yard striders in the grass and mess around with a lot of stuff that I've learned on Joel's podcast and just trying to feel running differently, experiencing running differently. But would agree with Michelle. It's definitely, it's a running centric focus to training these days. Yeah. Tim, you had, before we started talking on the show, you had um, some anecdotes about the one arm training. Cause I, I want to, I don't want to forget it. Cause I, I had posted a little bit about that and I, I got a few questions about it. So I know in terms of like running and things you were learning lately, you've been doing some things with run, one arm and with your clients. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the running clubs that I trained with when I lived in Boston, uh, had a good friend there named John. And I think during some kind of like 70 or 80 mile ultra running race, he fell and he fractured his clavicle. And so I kind of figured I wouldn't be seeing John at practice for two or three months. And sure enough, like four or five days later, he saunters on back and we're doing mile repeats or something. And he hops right on in there. And afterwards I asked him like, man, how, how did that feel to run with, you know, only, only one arm. And really interestingly, he said he actually felt, I believe it was his left arm that was slinged. And he said he felt really, really strong pushing off his left leg. Like he might've been rotating too much in one direction and taking the arm out of the equation made him more aware of his mechanics that compared to, or that combined with kind of hearing about some of the single arm strider stuff from your podcast got me to experiment with that. And that is how it's being utilized right now with myself and a lot of my clients, you know, putting an arm in like a sling position or behind the back and making the client aware that the action of that arm is largely going to drive how they're going to drive off one leg or the other. So interesting way to bring some awareness to like the role of the arm, the role of the thorax and in getting into a good position for a good stride. Michelle, you mentioned going from strength into the endurance realm. And I feel like for people who are in strength and conditioning, if you will, it's kind of like the dark side to go start doing endurance in a little bit of a way. <laughs> yeah. Is that something, did you, when did you make that? Like, I don't know if you mentioned it, but when did you make that transition? Like how long ago did you really start making that? Well, I kind of teeter-tottered. So what happened was when I was in undergrad, I played college collegiate-level soccer. And I played, like, outside midfielder. And I could just run all day. And then I got into the track team, and I would run 10 miles with them and then go to soccer practice. Like, I was a huge endurance athlete. I could run for days. And I loved every second of it. And then when I got into grad school, I went into the field of strength and conditioning. And what we did is we lifted barbells. And so that's what I did. And I kind of got away, especially in regards to, you know, I lived in New Hampshire. And so I would go running through the woods. And it's so different to trail running, you know, watching your step in front of you. Like it's a lot more peaceful. It's almost like active meditation of being like, I'm not going to trip over these roots. And you lose all of the other thoughts. When I went to grad school, I was in the city. So, you know, not a great city either. So like running on cement and like cars whizzing by you, like it's not an enjoyable experience. So I kind of dropped off with running, lifted heavy barbells, put on like you know, 20 pounds of muscle. And um, I kind of kept that going all through grad school. And then 
it wasn't until I moved a little closer to a reservation, I started to kind of understand more of the importance of spending time outside. I would go for like long walks. And then I was like, you know what? I got to find some woods around here and get back into something that I really enjoy doing. Yeah, I'll say the the trail run versus the street run or even a track. It's so different. I just love like the perception and, and it's like you're constantly being tasked with something to do. But at the same time, you it's kind of a meditation because it's it's like that the way a repetitive task is in some ways. But that has oh, meaning yeah. and you're there. You're finding your step and you're not just kind of like on a treadmill looking at the TV or, or even a track when it's just like, you know, there's no there's no task outside of your body. I hope that makes sense. Anyways, I, oh, I like to I could crush a treadmill run. Like I could run in a blink of an eye, like for an hour on a treadmill watching like a TV show, but there's, there's nothing like I'm, I'm not spiritual, like internal about that. You're stuck on like watching like law and order in front of me, like totally disassociated from like what I'm doing. And that was like grad school for me. And then, you know, out on the trail, I'm the only person out there. Like, I don't see anyone on these like back trails, which so is you and just like silence. And it's just such a different experience, especially like awareness wise, feeling your body like move through these trails. Yeah, it's I know that was deep. <laughs> yeah, that's, it is. I mean, I think everyone who's actually and I imagine most people who are listening have gone on a trail run at some point. And if you haven't, definitely do it. It's there's something to it that's I mean, I, I'm for even speed and power athletes, I'm clearly not a big go on long runs person at all, but I wouldn't mind even if I tra have to trade a little bit of, I don't know, I guess doing something that's your body doesn't respond optimally to, but for being in nature and getting a lot of like oxygen, fresh air and that mindset. It's almost like the meditation and the relaxation almost supersedes any perceived negative you might have by running two or, you know, two or three miles through the woods if you're a you know, fast switch power athlete or whatever. But that's a small bucket, <laughs> like the power, the power lifter, the Olympic lifter, you know, the high jumper, those types of things. So 100%. cool. So anyways, this all leads us to, and I like this group we have here because, and even I know you guys, you guys do running and I think it's very easy for a lot of people listening to this show. They'll, it's like, okay, we're interested in, in, sprinting and jumping and but it's all gate it's all running and sprinting it's just it's just on the the spectrum of the same thing and so i'm excited to tie these worlds of lifting and training and the gate cycle together and so uh the question i have for you guys is let's say the best place to start this is your perception on how do we get to that point of what we know or our main tools of exercise so if i was a power lifter of course i'm going to start with the power lifts for athletes and and then hopefully branch out from there. If I'm an Olympic lifter, I'm going to start with the Olympic lifts for athletes and branch out from there. What was you guys' beginnings and the lifts that you guys used? And then tell me a little bit about your journey and how you have started to relate those two athletic movement and the gait cycle more over time. I'll go. Yeah. So my athletic background in high school and college was mainly distance running, middle distance running specifically. And in that there's a big culture of core training and like it really didn't come to my attention until recently to question that but it just was you know from ninth grade through my senior year of college for 10 to 20 minutes after every run it was planks it was bridges it was side planks with no real no real rationale as to how that would feed into improved running and that was kind of my introduction in a lot of ways into like any kind of training outside of running. Cause for 
many, many years, it was just, you know, 40, 50, 60 miles a week. Eventually uh, got hurt, had a stress fracture in my right foot, kind of in the middle of college. And this was right about the time where CrossFit started to really come up. And it was, you know, I was overjoyed that I could go find a different activity that I could overtrain in, you know, 10 or 20 different ways. So in a lot of ways, that running injury set me up into an altogether different paradigm of physical training where, you know, in CrossFit, it's all about symmetrical. It's all about bilateral. It's all about sagittal plane. And that then became the lens probably for the next six or seven years into some of my early physical therapy career by which I viewed physical performance. Like if you could not measure it via a deadlift or a back squat or a max effort box jump, then was it really, you know, even an output? Yeah. Those movements are so easy to measure too, aren't they? Like just very clear in our minds. Anyways, I don't want to go on that rabbit trail with that. Michelle, I'm interested in your take here on your background. So, you know, I came from collegiate level athletics. We had a strength conditioning program. It's kind of where I connected, you know, lifting and really enjoyed it. And then I went to grad school for strength and conditioning. And all that really has to do with, you know, the field of, SNC or collegiate level things. And if you, if you really dial that down and really think about where that comes from, this field of strength conditioning that's extremely new, it comes from different sports that we associate with fitness. It's come from bodybuilding. I consider a sport. It comes from powerlifting and then Olympic lifting. So to me, like at a so the exercises were categorized in relation to those sports and like strength and conditioning has like kind of you know, the foundation of that I feel like is like the recreation version of like all of those sports together so like bodybuilding you see like this culture of you know, hypertrophy and of thinking about isolation activities so like bicep curls whatnot and in the field of like powerlifting, we teach people how to bilateral big movements like squat bench like those are the those are big two lifts that we learn and like are hammered home into us and basically where I came from and then Olympic lifting you know especially at the collegiate level it's like this weird thing of like you tell people you're not hand cleaning your athletes or snatching your athletes they're like wait what then they're actually not lifting how can they get better at their sport and you know then we threw in the category to include Olympic lifting as triple extension. So now from power lifting, we had you know, horizontal push pull, vertical push pull, you know, hinge for the deadlift and then squat. And then from Olympic lifting, we have triple extension. So like, those are like the exercise categories that I kind of grew up with and kind of have in my mind or had in my mind as a way to like view movements through. And I think we're seeing the shift in the industry of like rethinking how to think about what exercise means to us in terms of what, what outcomes we're, we're getting for the people that we work with. Yeah. So, I mean, that's been a big portion of, uh, I mean, the recent shows on this podcast, my own journey as um, an athlete and, and coach and, you know, being an athlete still in my, in my estimation, moving forward has really been, what do I do with these lifts, how they're coached over time. And before I think we, we talk a little bit about how we've, I wouldn't say gone away because we, we haven't really, I'm sure we still use these. I certainly still use uh, portions of the big lifts in my program. And before we talk about all the iterations and all these other things, 
I would like to ask you guys, what role do the big lifts still play and or a modified versions of those big lifts? And what is the role of them in your programs? It's to me, it's like we can't label things as good or bad. It's the usefulness comes in whatever outcome is trying to be driven from. The thing that the industry needs to get rid of is this kind of you always need to do something. But we need to start thinking about, you know, if we're going to talk about running, like what's going to make this person a better runner in whatever tools that we choose it's all geared towards that outcome. It doesn't matter what you, like, if you choose the bilateral squat, like in your head, you just have to know that your intent of prescribing that exercise is to get the outcome that you desire. Not just, I need to squat this person because that's what I do as a strength conditioning coach is I load people up and moving more weight will you know, get some outcome and yeah, they'll be stronger. And yeah, that will make them a better runner. You know, it has to be like, we have to take something and dial it down and really start thinking and defining what we're doing it or viewing it in a certain way and getting out of these kind of gross categorizations that have really come from, like I said, other sports. Tim, how about you? I think the the big three, if we're talking about you know squat, deadlift, bench, they're all derived from patterns that naturally emerge if you watch human beings move, right? So I think for a while, everyone got really, really hot on chasing performance in those lifts in terms of the you know the amount of weight that you can put in the barbell and then execute something that looks like those lifts. But you know, the primary hat that I wear is is that of a physical therapist and dealing with you know people that are in pain that want to move better. And in a squat and in a hinge specifically, we see elements of gait where if I can give someone a squat derivative or a hinge derivative, be it bilateral or unilateral, and I see table tests improve, I see range of motion regain, and I see pain abolished, then that would be a completely different utilization, kind of like what Michelle is talking about, a completely different outcome that I'm trying to achieve with something that is still a squat, that is still a hinge, but we're trying to push things in an entirely different direction. Yeah. If, if we're talking about running, like we could kind of break this down into kind of three categories, if you will. You know, this comes from a good a conversation with a good friend of um, Ryan Heikert, and he has this multi-directional speed model that he's kind of developed. And we're kind of chatting, and if we really break down things, we're talking about you know max velocity, acceleration, and change direction. And you can imply, you know, you can pull movement fixed movement principles from all of those and really apply it to any setting, especially change the direction. We're talking on field performance. And if we're talking about like big lifts, you can correct me if I'm wrong, like high velocity, excuse me, max velocity, we're going to be a little bit more restricted in our movement. We want to kind of limit the movement that we're going through on like maybe acceleration. And maybe that's where like those big lifts do apply. But in terms of those three, you know, categorizations of movements, we could dissect and maybe insert our roles a little bit, like, you know, the skill of like that movement of like what's happening throughout those and even change the direction. Like you have to be able to decelerate and then reaccelerate. You have to be able to, you know, in sport, maybe jumping, shooting, landing. And those are all kind of like skills. So there's skills within these movement patterns. 
And then, you know, our roles as coaches is to be able to create drills to be able to isolate and teach those skills. And then we can start thinking about exercises, in my opinion, in relation to like the abilities within those skills, like start categorizing exercises as, you know, this is a a dissection of this skill and this is you know, a rationale for why we're doing it. And that's going to kind of make them better, you know, in those movement patterns. And so like, if we're talking like your question was in relation to big lifts and need to get off there. But like I said, like maybe max velocity, maybe you're trying to restrict motion a little bit. And that's what some of those big lifts do. And maybe that's like a, a good tool to be able to do that. Yeah. If we're, if we're talking running and I think of the whole polarity, like from one end all the way to the other. I could tell you what one end is for sure. <laughs> the, the, the most energetic or high force rate of force pull is, is Alex Natera's run specific ISOs, in my opinion, getting into a run specific position and isometrically pressing as hard as you can in terms of a force, a weight room based construct, just because, well, a squat is a squat, a lot of force. Yeah, but it's not, it's not the same. The force isn't, it's not the same ballpark. So I feel like when we're talking about if we want an outcome that an athlete can see, quantitatively and numbers and you have a force plate like this is the ultimate this is specific and then i hope that the other end of the pole i feel like is what everything else we're going to talk about in terms of all the other like where you gain function where do you missing function where does this fit with running on maybe the softer levels i hope i hope i'm not putting insinuating anything but that's the way i kind of see it i think that that makes perfect sense and when i think about that and i think tim could probably fall in line with this of like when you say that, I think there is a difference between fitness and like movement because you say force production, you know, we use these words or terms, you know, strength, endurance, we're trying to build fitness qualities. Like, I feel like that's kind of our role. And then, you know, movement is getting back joint range of motion so they can perform those movement patterns more effectively. And yes, each one can fall in the other category, but there's different ways of thinking about it. Like, are we doing this type of activity to improve their aerobic capacity or force production? And then maybe are we doing this movement to improve their ability to extend at their hip, which both equally is going to make them better at whatever they're performing in. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about two units that Simply Faster now has out that are excellent for training data collection in measuring bar speeds, sprint metrics, limb speeds, and more. The first is the VMAX Pro. If you're interested in barbell tracking technology that is affordable for the individual athlete in the garage gym, but yet is accurate enough to be trusted by professional teams, then you might be interested in the VMAX Pro. The VMAX Pro is a tiny sensor that attaches to the barbell or even the body to help with lifting and jump training metrics. It'll give you immediate feedback for jumps, lifts, and even measure the motion of the bar in 3D. It includes a travel pouch and the associated app works on both Android and iOS devices. You can auto-regulate with precision with the VMAX Pro. The second unit is the Muscle Lab IMU. If you want to take your movement training to the next level, then the IMU is something you would definitely want to look into as it's a pocket-sized sensor that can attach anywhere on the body and deliver research-grade motion real-time. With it, you can collect ground contact times during sprints, limb speeds for jumping and throwing, 
and even support return to play metrics. The sensor fuses with the rest of the Muscle Lab sensor system for even deeper insights. You can improve your movement data and get measurement that matters today with the Muscle Lab IMU unit. You can improve the depth of your workout metrics with these two pieces of technology. And if you're interested, you can head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Check out their online store where you can find these pieces and improve the depth of your training metrics today. Let's get on back to the show. Before we kind of keep going into where you guys have gone in, in kind of, I don't want to say exit. It would be trendy and a cool topic to say, I exited the big lifts. And I, you know, uh, but I do want to ask you, and then Michelle, for you specifically, having worked in uh, the university, the sector where, and even the private sector now, I'm sure, where it is cultural to have, you know, XYZ lift, I want to get better at this lift. Because I, I believe you were using, like you had a few typical strength days. And then uh, I know as per our last podcast, like a frontal and transverse day. So you had your strength trays, a, a frontal and transverse, two conditioning days. So on those those big lift days, those strength days, what derivatives were you using and how did you communicate that to the athletes in terms of the purpose of this, this movement and this lift in this day? Yeah, so I used to theme out my days. So one day would be like a strength day or like an intensity day. So very low volume, high intensity days. And that's when, yeah, we would focus on, you know, what loading schemes we were working on or how fast we were doing something. And then days where they were called movement days. So we're just going through various types of movements, exposing them to different types of positions. And that was maybe on a day either before or after the game or something like that. So that's when I, you know, we worked on a lot of frontal plane activity or transverse plane activity. It's complicated because one, you know, those strength days were a little infrequent and that's just, that's more maintenance at that point, like in season, especially like the hockey seasons, like what my primary sport was, that's an, that's an all year round thing. So we're, we're not really building up this huge kind of change in that fitness quality. We're just trying to maintain that over time. And that's really what I kind of explained that to them. And that, and I always kind of said, you know, that's not your priority. Your priority is going to practice. And that's the biggest thing of, I think, we overemphasize what they're doing in the weight room without thinking about how it's affecting them on the ice. Those movement days I thought were the most beneficial because we were kind of saying, you know, what's the common theme we're seeing through players in conversation with the athletic training department and maybe what can I do to maybe counteract that or, you know, they're getting crushed with volume in practice constantly well, how can I counteract that? How can I benefit these athletes instead of just putting more on them through weight room activity? So yeah, I think there's a huge benefit to bilateral lifts because we could hit them as a stimulus, as a high intensity stimulus, maintain that over time, and then use you know, unilateral or split stance activities or transverse plane activities to work on other qualities that will keep them healthy or healthier over time. Cool. Yeah. I know in that high performance environment, it really is about keeping athletes healthy. I mean, coaches, you know, they'll, they'll care about the strength and stuff, but they really care about keeping athletes. I mean, if, yeah. if you said what's really important, it's keeping athletes on the ice, on the court, on the field, it's, that's it. Like, I, I mean, I don't know, like, <laughs> honestly, it's good intention. And there's some coaches who a hundred percent do get it, but the high majority of coaches do not get it. I mean, I have had things in the past where I worked at a university 
to me, that was a rarity. It was amazing. Mm. The sports performance department, it was separate from the athletic department. So like, you know, we weren't influenced by what coaches had to say, like they weren't paying our salary kind of a thing. And the strength mission coaches worked very closely with the athletic training department. We were kind of all on the same page, but that wasn't, didn't keep us away from coaches being like, why aren't you squatting exactly? Why aren't they hang cleaning? Because that's their expectation of like what mm. we do. Um, so having those conversations to me in the collegiate setting is a rarity one. And I think powerlifting and Olympic lifting are still the mainstream in that environment. Yeah. I've definitely have seen it where a sport coach, not uh, any uh, I worked with, but would say, Hey, we do this. I've always done this kind of lift when I was at another school. Why aren't we doing this here? And it's just like people always have in their mind a perception of what exercise is. And it's, I'm sure there's yes. like the mental heuristics you could say, you know, whatever the fallacy or the, the logic that you go to when you connect X with Y with Z or the same thing that a parent sees a speed ladder and they're like, Oh, you know, like this is speed training and, and whatever, whatever these, whatever these dots that get connected, right. That make us associate. So I think that will be a good segue to, uh, some of the some of these categories and some of these things that that you have, uh, I will say my final parting shot is I do think there's this could be a, just a whole nother show, but uh, with just the bilateral lifts force and all that, that I think there's there's cultural elements, confidence elements, there's you know global elements, and I think that all is really important. I I still mm-hmm. just for me personally, I I've probably just gone or gravitated just towards the squat being and just squatting well and doing that movement particularly well as being kind of my cornerstone, my keystone. Uh, where I've gone to over time. But I just did want to say I, I do, before we get any further, I, for me, it is, it's still an important thing. That's that's still a, an element. But I'm always trying to learn how to make that squat better, you know, because I think it's easy to mess it up um, and, and, over time. Yeah, I think the thing is, is like, um, you know, we say the word squat, but there's so many ways to squat, so many variations, right? But we always just go to like the barbell back squat. And that's important, like, you know, who doesn't enjoy doing that? But there's various ways to perform every movement, right? So mm-hmm. like we squat people, bilateral squat people all the time. It just may not, they may not have a barbell on their back. Yeah. I mean, I haven't personally, I haven't squatted with a bar on my back for an extremely long time, years. I've done a few floating heel, yeah. like back squats, but not with any substantial weight just to kind of play around with it. So I don't know if I should count those, but I mean, at 37, I'm jumping way better than I have the last two years and way better than I had a lot of my early thirties doing a lot of squatting. And so it's been, that's just, once you kind of just take off the, the need to do a certain exercise or categorize it in there and make it part of your training, you are free almost, you, you are free to experience more of what the body has to offer. Again, I will say, I'm not going to say it's like, I think a back squat is good, but it's just, is anything really good or bad? It's just in context, right? So Anyways, so let's di- uh, dive in a little bit on, so departing from, uh, I guess, mainstream perceptions of why are we, why are we doing this? This is, this is training strength, power. Where do you guys start from? So let's just say in running, this is probably super broad, but where do you start? I'm, I'm building a strength program. Where do we start? I'll go. So for the, I, I do a lot of performance programming for runners that I work with. I, I think the first thing that I always want to see is what their running actually looks like. I think, especially from wearing the physical therapy hat, it can be really tempting to try to do table tests on everybody and determine that, you know, if they have more hip internal rotation, they have a longer stride. 
but probably getting a overview on just the overall gestalt of what their running pattern looks like is going to nudge me in the right direction. I be that, you know, in an actual conscious me observing a specific action with how they run or just a subconscious, I, you know, I have a feeling that this needs to be a little bit more smooth, a little bit more flowy. You're holding too much tension in your, in your core. So I think probably look looking at the thing itself would be a really, really good place to start. Yeah. Like just working from the run outwards instead of saying, Hey, I got these exercises and everyone's going to do them, you know, like, yeah. So just that athlete first model. Probably. And then, you know, we, we talked a little bit off air about like the front foot elevated versus rear foot Mm -hmm. elevated split squat model. And with, you know, with someone that looks a little bit too vertical, that isn't really like falling effectively and producing horizontal force effectively. It's like, you can kind of tell that by watching someone jog on a treadmill and that might already bias me into Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, an individual like that might actually do very well with a rear foot elevated split squat to teach them to fall a little bit more and propulse a little bit more effectively. Mm -hmm. And then the converse would be true. If someone's falling forward a little bit too much, might be worthwhile to elevate the front foot. Interesting. Is that falling in the sense of, can you explain the the falling a little bit more? Cause I think about, um, I mean, I'm, I always have a Darian Bars concepts primed in my head and I think about falling, shin falling, working with gravity. Could you just put uh, gravity and falling in, the, in your context as you see it? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think of it in terms of the plane that the hip socket needs to orient into. So like if you have a person that is just vertically stacked straight up and down, um, you know, if you listen to a lot of Bill stuff or Zach stuff, it's like we're all about maintaining this stacked position where we have head, thorax, pelvis, foot. Unfortunately, you know, if you were just to maintain that vertical stack, it'd be really, really hard for you to create enough horizontal propulsion to move forward quickly. So you're going to have to disrupt that. You're going to have to take that whole stack and orient it forward so that now you have kind of the head in front of the thorax in front of the pelvis. And that's going to give you a much more advantageous position to push from. I think like Helen Hall has mentioned on your podcast a while back, if that goes too far, then you lose the ability to actually create enough vertical force to support yourself. And you're just kind of like, you're a series of almost Mm -hmm. unsupported falls in space, but there's definitely that happy medium of, you know, there needs to be enough momentum going anteriorly that you can actually push and continue going forward. Mm. I love what Tim has to say. And he's like mindset of like, you know, going back to what we've learned from like different systems, it's always test retest. And that's the only thing that matters. It's like, okay, if I have a runner coming to me, you know, what's their goal? Are they getting faster times after working with me? And I think as a field in general, sometimes we have this mindset of like, Hey, I'm just going to take this huge handful of magnets and I'm going to throw them at a fridge Mm -hmm. and Hey, what sticks kind of a thing. And you know am I just magically making this person better or not even worrying about that and just saying, Hey, I need to create a program that has a horizontal push pull, a vertical push pull, a squat and a hinge. And you know, that that's what I do. And that that's what's just going to make them better. I think we need to like take a step back from them and say like, what is required for the skill of running? And then yeah. Oh, I, I was just I was just going to add because, uh, you know, your original question, Joel, was where to start and something Michelle brought up two questions ago. 
was actually looking at like the needs analysis of the team or the client in front of you. And if, you know, if it's individual programming as both me and Michelle do, it's like, is this an athlete or a runner that's coming to one of us because they're just breaking down all the time and they need resilience. That's the outcome they're chasing. Or is this someone that's been doing distance running for 35 years and can barely lift a bag of groceries and they want to feel like they have more pop into the ground? Because then and there, like that's going to yield a different set of decisions towards a different outcome. Sorry to interrupt, Michelle. Oh, please. I'll never say sorry. And, you know, that goes back to kind of my extreme of like fitness movement. It's like I have a lot of people who come to me because of like they want to improve at something but there's a limitation or there's a barrier towards that. And usually that's like a nagging pain thing, like a runner who has like some pain in his hip. And, you know, that is what preventing him from increasing his volume in training. Well, so there it's just like, okay, well, I have to like focus on what's going on at the hip or other joints and be like, how can I create exercises to be able to give him some abilities that's going to help him perform better in, in gait. And, and that's what my training is. Like, it doesn't matter. You have to know when to use knowledge rather than just acquiring a bunch of it. Like I think Lee Taft, like I think that's one of his biggest lines I got. It's like speed insider course. It's like the most important thing you need to know is know when you need to know something or something, something <laughs> like that. But then it's like, okay, well then I have someone who's coming to me and these are a lot of my in-person general population clients. So I have a lot of trainers that come to me for what I just talked about. And my general population clients aren't in any real pain. They're not, they don't have like a huge performance goal. And now I can kind of focus on fitness qualities of like, okay, we need to increase their aerobic capacity first. We need to increase maybe their strength level. And to me, those things kind of clean up or like sweep up this like low hanging fruit kind of a thing where over time they actually feel better movement wise because they've acquired some like baseline fitness. And that's kind of how I think about like where to start with someone. It's like, where are they on the spectrum? Wherever they are is basically like need to remove limitations or need to kind of improve in their overall fitness levels. And that's where I'm going to focus kind of my choices of interventions. Yeah. I guess you could say there's a, there's like a limitation based uh, exercise selection bucket. And then like with Tim, what you were saying with the rear foot and front foot elevated, there's the the biomechanical bucket too. And then I almost want to, I, I feel like there is a third bucket in the sense of like, okay, now let's, let's put the accelerator down. Let's put some force behind it. But maybe that just lives in the first two. That's such, such a good point. You know, how I view like exercise categorization is like, you need to pick these two extremes and then fill in buckets in between. So like, that was a perfect point of like, yeah, the, this, this person's not going to be stuck in this like movement or like we're addressing limitation bucket the whole time. Like there has to be something like a progression towards that. So now they're doing things, maybe their progression throughout their program is doing things with increased speed or, you know, increased resistance through that movement. So they still have to be kind of, they, you two end of the spectrums, but they're like going towards each other in some way. I would also add based on something that you said earlier, Joel, you know, something like a, 
trap bar deadlift or like just a really easy way to get a lot of load going through people's systems can be a really invaluable tool if you're working with like a younger like I'm thinking like middle school, high school population to just develop confidence producing force. I think psychologically that could be so huge. If that's left unchecked and now that athlete's 25 or 26, their primary event is distance mm-hmm. running, but they're chasing a 400 pound deadlift. Like I've seen that movie. I, I can personally not mm-hmm. recommend that movie, but again, it's, it's, it's buckets. It's knowing when to use the right tool for the right job. That's such, that's such a good point. And like someone asked me the other day, like why I have, you know, my adult clients that I work with skip and like, they were kind of asking me like related questions towards like force production or like biomechanics wise. And I was like, you know what, that's actually not my rationale for it. It's because they actually fear skipping. Hmm. They're actually like afraid to do that. And so that's why I do that because now I want to show them that they're capable of doing that. And then actually we can progress to other things over time yeah, we can dive down like biomechanics and like force production and whatever ground contact, but some general population clients, we just totally afraid to do certain movements. Yeah. I think that, well, Tim, to what you said, I, I did want to touch on that too, is I think the, if we look at a, a lift or a movement or an exercise as a marker by which for someone to have confidence, I do think that the big lifts, the traditional lifts carry a very potent delivery. Like they are very potent at that, but I just talked on the recent podcast here with Ty Terrell that unfortunately people put that anchor in their system. Like, oh, this is what it means to be strong. Well, I just need to keep going up, 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 up for me to feel strong. I need to come in PR in this lift to feel strong. Well, what if there was a lift that was more relevant and specific to your running goals or what, or jumping or throwing or whatever that was more substantial or rewarding for you to PR in, in terms of your event status? So I think there's always a complex like psychological thing going on. It's never completely isolated, for sure. And I'm always trying to be aware of that with the different populations. The only thing that has to do with, like, communication skills of the coach and being able to say, like, you know, in your head, I have fixed movement principles. This is why I'm doing something. But whoever you're speaking to, you have to speak at the level of the listener and in the context of what's important to them. So, like, you could be trap bar deadlifting, two different people, but you explain it completely differently to those two people based on what you want their value system to be towards like training and that lift. Mm-hmm. Just in kind of like what you said. You're like a, you're like a tiny blonde Yoda. <laughs> you're so sweet, Tim. Um, <laughs> no, what I was going to add was, you know, I, it seems like we keep centrating around these, these big three and especially, you know, in my realm, the squat and the deadlift, but just from a biomechanical standpoint, we can make very small tweaks to these conventional lifts where we hack off an immense amount of downside and still provide some upside. So like it goes without saying, I think a lot of listeners of this show know like a trap bar deadlift instead of a barbell deadlift or something like a zercher squat instead of a barbell back squat. But that could provide a means by which people can still, you know, stay in these like safe anchors, these places that they, they want to be without sacrificing so much movement variability and so much potential health down the road. Yeah, I think that's a that's that step forward has been one that's become more commonplace in the industry, which is great. You know, versus I I clearly the powerlifts are still the powerless, but I definitely think athletic performance as a whole has definitely become more accustomed with those those variations as being more meaningful, better for the athlete. And I know Mike Boyle's obviously done a lot to help that out and and other good coaches. And so it's good to see that 
beyond that though, I do think, and I, maybe I mentioned this a little bit, the front of the show, but it's like, as soon as we start getting into really down the single lake rabbit hole, if you will, or exercises that just look different. Cause maybe like, I know Michelle, some of your videos, like you're using a cable in a certain way, or there's something that's even, um, a movement that's been really meaningful for me lately is doing a modified step up that Rocky Snyder taught it to me, but it came from Gary Ward with the wedges and the way he does it. So basically for people listening, it's a step up where you're, you're letting your knee track over your big toe. You're twisting and spiraling the body in a way that fits with the gait cycle as you descend and drop into it. It's basically like a pistol or a skater in terms of intensity. The muscles are still being stimulated and probably even better. But that thing with the wedges, the foot wedges to fill in foot pressure where I needed it really just lit up my VMO, lit up my glute. They really like highlighted those areas. And although it didn't look like a typical straight ahead exercise, it gave me what I needed. And honestly, that being my main strength movement for some time after I was jumping higher, I was just feeling better. I mean, I don't know if my squat, where my squat was, where my back squat was, I had no idea. But I knew that I was a better athlete because it filled something I didn't have and it gave me something that I needed, which is probably just being overly knees out or even straight ahead oriented for so long that it just took me away from an elastic and rotational paradigm. So I, I say that just to ask you guys. So once we start departing from, I think, the familiar, like uh, the very familiar movements and big movements and even, even the split squat and those are pretty familiar to a lot of people. But what are some of the first things that we're looking at when we're just, let's just say single leg, cause that's more functional. And I think, uh, it can be, you know, it'd be a more functional move around single leg sport to single leg, but what's the first uh, alterations that we might bring in based off need. I know Tim, you mentioned it. You can elevate the front foot back, but that was really, I thought that was really cool. Uh, what are some other alterations we can make to like a, just a single leg, uh, lift based off need? Yeah. So, uh, I think Tim can hit this one home. I kind of just want to mention like the word tradition. And, and that's, that's what we're kind of like talking about of like, we need to start challenging these expectations of tradition in terms of like, we always think like, you know, a split squat, it's either I hold like a barbell or two dumbbells and I go straight up, straight down. And kind of like what you're referencing in terms of like adding a cable somewhere or holding a barbell, maybe between my legs, the Jefferson split squat. Well, I can perform a split squat a hundred different thousands of different ways. And all that matters is like the intent behind that. So like, yes, I can split my feet front to back, move vertically up and down, but maybe that cable coming across my body is pushing my opposite hip back. And why do I want to do that? And, and that's all about like my intent that, intent that I have. Maybe Tim can kind of like, compound that but that's just like a thought that i had yeah no i i definitely agree with all of that i think like michelle said there's an infinite amount of variables there's definitely an infinite amount of ways to do a split squat and it probably just goes back to that original needs analysis of you know are we dealing with someone that is maybe like to build off your recent podcast with ty like overly concentric and doesn't yield enough mm -hmm. And then we might use something like a super slow eccentric. We're probably going to load them minimally or not at all. We're probably going to elevate that front foot. We're going to teach a much more yielding strategy because we've decided that's what that person needs. We're not making, like Michelle says, we're not making any decisions on like, this is the right thing to do for everybody. We're going to take a look at the athlete in front of us and then go from there. Conversely, if you have that kind of 
like older or pure distance runner, you, we might be working with a little bit of a quicker, quicker tempo. We might be using the, the stretch shortening cycle a little bit differently. So, I mean, I think there's just, there's a million ways to take that. Tim, could you actually expand it? Cause I know um, if people haven't listened to the episode with Ty, uh, could you expand on that a little bit? Cause that's, that's uh, an information train that I'm just getting so much out of. And so, and it's, again, this always, <laughs> I, I joke that this comes back to me selfishly, personally, I'm just doing this podcast so I can jump higher and run, you know, run faster, be a better athlete. But if I've messed myself up, so to speak, by becoming more, um, I guess, con- is, is the rare concentrically oriented through too much, you know, back squatting, impingement strategy, anterior pelvic tilt. And then in talking with Ty, basically, if I'm always in anterior pelvic tilt, when I squat, I'm creating a paradigm where I'm not allowing the, I'm not creating, allowing posterior tilt. I'm not allowing the pelvic bowl to expand the guts to descend that natural bounce and pressurization. I've taken away the load and uns- explode. I'm, I'm trying, I'm basically summarizing in just a few seconds, what could be a who knows how long course, right? And so I hopefully people have either been exposed to that information before or heard other podcasts about it. But if I've created this system of rigidity and not exploding or not loading to explode through impingement-based lifting, could you just go over again what what and why is the correction there? Because I, I just find like I anchor well and like, okay, I'm going to fix it with this. And then my creative mind can go in, in helping me to determine where to go with that. But just as an anchoring point... Can you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. I think for your listeners, it, it would be probably helpful to identify what that thing is. And, you know, probably again, physical therapy hat, the simple table tests or just self range of motion assessments are a good place to start here. So for what you described, like someone that is heavily patterned with a lot of like hingy type of movements, anterior pelvic tilt, increased lumbar lordosis, what you would typically see would be a loss of hip flexion and the loss of hip external rotation just on the table. And I think you, you probably want to identify that that's something that is actually going on before you go and intervene. But if you have that individual, they're biased towards, you know, just producing a lot of force right when their foot hits the ground, you can kind of think of it like they're in that rear foot, rear foot elevated split squat position to start. Like mm-hmm. they are ready to start pushing to produce horizontal force as soon as their foot hit, hits the ground. So if you flip the paradigm and you give them elevation of the front foot, now they're a little bit more vertical. They can kind of like you and Ty talked about, they can kind of let the guts settle down. And if you slow that tempo down, they can actually recapture that sensation of truly loading the leg and letting things settle down so that they have a better position to then propulse from. I hope that made sense. Yeah, I love that. I view it as get first, give them what they don't have or, or bring them back into center and then go slowly eccentrically so the brain can really kind of absorb it better. The learning's higher. Would that be a good way of putting it? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think so. I mean, I think if, if you think about what these people tend to be really, really good at, these are going to be people that can jump like very, very high that can probably pull decent weight off the ground, but they're going to be really, really bad into getting themselves into deeper ranges of motion because they just have never learned that skill of letting the body settle, letting the body relax. They're always trying to fight gravity from the second their foot hits the ground. So in general, someone who is that, that anterior tilty hingy type, a front footed elevated split squat would be superior to a rear foot. Correct. Okay. If, if the outcome, if that person is coming to you saying, Hey, I can't run as much as I would like because mm. I'm in pain, you identify some kind of restriction based on that. 
the appropriate intervention, again, kind of building up the stuff Michelle talked about, would be something like a front foot elevated split squat. We're probably not going to use a front foot elevated split squat to build load, but we're going to use it, at least how I use it, I'm going to use it to reteach a body how to access ranges of motion that it has lost through whatever else it's been doing. Got it. Yeah, that's a good explanation. I I noticed my brain trying to find the mat here. Tell, Tim, tell me the magic bullet to fix this and put tons of force on it too. At the same time, we'll use it to solve all our problems. <laughs> so, but I'm glad you put it uh, that way. Uh, Michelle, do you have anything to add based off that? Like you having someone come in with that paradigm, front foot backs, uh, front foot elevated, back foot elevated, where you're going from here in, in like that type of situation. No, I mean, that was phenomenal. That was an incredible explanation. And to me, I just get frustrated sometimes with, you know, people in this fitness industry taking all of their understanding from the flow of an authority figure with, without kind of diving into where that information came from and taking responsibility to like go to get that information. Cause like you hear so many talks, so much talking about like biomechanics, people just get so lost in paralysis by analysis of like what to do with it, where it's like, okay, let's just dial this back a little bit. And again, it goes back into like fitness and movement of like, do what you do really, really well. And then just find little ticks here and there of information that you can understand that maybe you can use as an intervention when that time is appropriate and not just saying, hey, I learned this new, I'm just going to go with it right away. And I think that's just like, Tim just like spoke to it just very well of being able to take this flow of information in and put it into his own words. And I think that's kind of like what you heard. So when it comes to putting this all together in a session, and I know you two may have very different clients and and goals that come to you based off the rehab to performance spectrum. So maybe Michelle, this may be a question a little bit more for you, because let's say it's someone who is on the, maybe their ultimate goal is, you know, performance end and there, there might be some I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're going to incorporate the big lifts, where does all this other stuff fit in? Does it, or, or do you even use it in a set? Like, let's just say it's a performance driven session. I want to, I play uh, basketball and I'm 18 and I just want to get stronger, be faster, X, Y, Z, right? Like, where do you go in a performance driven setting, given these things in mind? Uh, yeah, that's such a great question. So how I kind of organize my thinking is how I'm going to organize the time I have designated for a session. All right, let's focus on that first. So I have 60 minutes with someone, you know, where does my mind frame go? So I'm going to bleed out into that section what I think is important. So I kind of try to use the warm up as one, increasing heart rate, blood flow, all that, while being able to teach them something that they're going to be able to do later. So whatever, whatever that may be. And then we kind of go into putting speed on them or relative speed doing things quickly, whether that's like med ball work or change of direction drills or like skipping and anything like that. And then I'll do maybe some activities that are force production based. And that's maybe where I'll do like my big lifts or a bilateral squat or, you know, a bench press. And then maybe I'll follow that with what I call like a recapturing movement activity. Now I'm maybe focused on, doing some frontal plane work and focus on the ability to rotate through movements. And that's where I kind of send them off on their way. But, uh, you know, with my clients, I'm, I'm very focused on fitness, but I'm also mindful of, you know, movement abilities. 
so that's kind of how I organize my sessions. And that's how I, I just plan segments out that way. And then throughout the weeks, I create themes of the day. So say if I have someone three days a week and I'm only, I'm very week by week oriented. And so I'll have themes, like maybe the first day I see someone, it's very movement day where that recapturing movement section is longer than all the other sections. And then maybe I'll have a force production day where that force production section is longer than all the other sections. And then maybe I'll have a high volume, like aerobic capacity day where I'm turning each section into a circuit. So I'm kind of keeping their heart rate up, limited rest, but I'm, it never deviates from how I set my sessions up. And then if I think about long-term, maybe I'm doing the same thing or adding little changes here and there on like a three-week time frame. And I'm adding speed into the movement. So I want them to do something a little bit faster on each exercise. So that, that's kind of like where my mind frame goes when I'm, when I'm looking at what to do with people. So Michelle, I, I, of course I do have to ask you because my mind just does keep going here. So it's easy to have like to say, okay, this is a, if, if you're saying like this is more of a functional day and this is a force day on those force days, are you using more um, like, like, the, the derivatives, like the Zurchers and the, uh, what, what are, I mean, if I have to say like, what's a go-to for the typical way we describe uh, force production in a, in an actually loaded movement, what are some of your go-tos there on that day? Yeah. I mean, exactly what you said, like Zurcher squatting. Um, it depends on the individual, maybe high speed movements, maybe like jumping for some people that's very high force production. Yeah, bilateral lifts are a big focus, like trap bar deadlift, kettlebell deadlift is a high force production activity for some of the people that I work with. Standing up from a box fast is high force production from some of the people that I work with. So it's all relative based, but yeah, I guess if you had to say like a blanket statement, you know, my bilateral lifts would fall under that kind of umbrella. Yeah. I occasionally put those stakes down for blanket statements. <laughs> I like to do that <laughs> yeah, from time yeah, to time. Yeah. Uh, but okay, so I, I'm thinking with the, the, like I said before, I do think the industry is you know, hopefully moving into more of this, you know, making the big list more athletic and, and looking at them in a new light. But in terms of exercise selection for, I think once, not it's not in the weeds, but once we get into single leg lifts, I think that's where there's so many other things or things that we can like start to say, because as soon as you're single leg, you could start to bring the gait cycle into it, I think, more. There's more components, more variations. Uh, would you guys agree with that? I mean, I, it seems that way, at least for me. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, it's cool to, like, think about these things. So, you know, whatever school of thought you come into, it's like it's, it's a lens to view things through. So, you know, you talked about those single leg activities. Well, it's like once you start learning different things, you look at, different ways to kind of think about them. Like maybe your why changes, but the, the what and the how of the exercise stays the same. So like I've heard you mention like the Posture Restoration Institute on this podcast before. And like, if you go to some of their courses, maybe now you start thinking in swing phase versus stance phase and what you're manipulating in an exercise to kind of push them more towards a stance phase or a swing phase. And then Kind of what you talked about a little bit before with Tim, he mentioned maybe a little bit more propulsion or maybe a little bit more loading through those types of activities. So it's like you, you get in these, these realms, whatever your level of understanding is through a subject, and that's how you kind of, you're able to make decisions off of these types of activities. 
And Joel, I would say that although the single leg biased activities look a lot like gait, there's always going to be an element of gait at play with even mm-hmm. a bilateral activity. Like I think you talked about this with Ty, but like something like a squat coached up well with a tibia that translates forward is going to have a lot yes. of like early stance, early propulsion loading elements to it. And a deadlift is going to be the exact opposite where it's going to be a lot of like, we're going to compress things and put a lot of force into the ground. So even though both things are happening on the left and right simultaneously, we're still dealing with the gait cycle. Yeah, that's that's interesting you mentioned that. Well, and even when I said it, single leg, more get like the gait cycle, I'm thinking back to Pat Davidson's knees in for the win article and he's talking, you know, the staple classic if anyone hasn't yeah. uh, went out and read it, but like talking about relating that bilateral movement to the gait cycle where the knees are coming in because of where that athlete is in the gait cycle. So maybe I... Maybe I just referenced out of, I think what's, you know, it's like one leg in front of the other. Look, like, look, at it, but it's always going back to that. Right. Um, I'm already like losing where I was with the, my question for you a little bit. So, so back to one foot though, cause I think I, as soon as I'm talking about the bilateral now, I'm old, I'm getting like thinking about that. Oh, I, I really like what you said, Tim, about actually before I get back to single leg or maybe talking about that, but I, that helps me a lot. Like these, these more solid rocks, like if you said, if squatting, focusing basically on the load, the loading element, the, if, as long as the knees can go forward and then the deadlift being the explode. And so it almost, it just makes me think about when athletes get gains based off a certain lift, like, oh, I did these, this deadlift program and, you know, I, and I got this gain in, in whatever sprinting, jumping, or I did a squat. It also makes me think, well, man, where were they on the, the load explode paradigm? Were they functioning well before that? Did they have a need or a lack? Or maybe they're doing great. The, the program that springs to mind is um, like the bear, the bear powered Allison Felix did this bear powered deadlift. And, you know, I mean, it's it, there's a lot of factors there, too. But I'd never really heard it put like that before, despite doing all these episodes. So I'm, I'm glad you that makes it very easy for me to understand, though, in a squat and deadlift and what we're getting at. And I think that's a good thing to talk about. when We're categorizing things as well. And I think I, I would give credit to like Gray Cook and the FMS people from damn near a decade ago, but something they always talked about was maintain the squat and train the deadlift. So it's like there are going to be certain movement patterns that are that make a lot more sense to like train the output of as long as we have some movement baseline that we can be sure we're not losing. So if we lose the de- the ability to do a full depth squat while chasing a 500 pound deadlift, we're probably going to become a worse athlete. But if we can, you know, deadlift double body weight and squat pretty pretty clean ass to grass like you and Ty were talking about last week, like that's going to be a more resilient athlete. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. I, I had heard that great cook anecdote too, where mine goes my mind goes right away as well. How much do I necessarily need to you know, train a squat for force then on the high level, like a functional squat, what's the max force I need to get out of it. And, you know, like it makes me think of, um, a strength coach at, uh, he's at uh, Alabama and I was at Indiana and it was like, well, 1.7 is the highest need, but it's like, well, what kind of 1.7 squat was that? Was it a, did you put your hips back? Was it straight down? Like, like what's this load, the max load and how does that fit? I'm sure we could have a long discussion on all this, but that's where I like to go because I always look at those hangups of, well, why did this athlete squat go up and they didn't get jump higher or run fast, but, or this other athlete, they did their squat did go up and they did have these outputs or this athlete likes a deadlift and that helped them. And it just kind of, once you can wrap your mind around the, this athlete centered and what are they missing and, or what do they have? And then it just got better. And, and like you said too, like deadlift is output. And if we're talking about sprinting and stuff like that, it, it starts to paint, I think possibly a clearer picture when we hear these anecdotes of X athlete did X program and 
they go X, Y, Z, and they did that output. So it just helps me. It's some of those, even though it's, it's, you know, standard, standard archetypes that those are really helpful. And I, I would credit Bill Hartman here. I think he came out with something a year or two ago, but trying to answer the question of how strong is strong enough. And that's always going to be context specific, but it's however strong you can get without losing the things that you need for your activity. So I think the example he brought in was like something like a, like an NFL DB trying to train for the 40 yard dash. And they might shave like three tenths of a second off their 40, but they lose all this hip internal rotation that they need to then cut and they become much worse at football. Yeah. And that's the thing that it's like you always have to be zooming out. And so it's so helpful to have those minds to help us keep zooming out because otherwise we would just see a fast sprint and just think that's well, that's it. But we know from experience that those guys who are lighting up the combine 40 aren't the guys who are necessarily have uh, great careers or even single seasons. I mean, it's it's uh, there's a lot to it. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Anyways, any um, any parting shots from you guys? Any anything you guys have in your minds to close this talk out with before we uh, before we hit the stop button? Uh, no, I'm good. Figured, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tim. Oh no, I, I was just going to add. I you know I think the I credit Michelle to turning me onto this concept, but the movement versus fitness paradigm I find to be a really really useful one because you can impact fitness qualities that then have a positive trickle down to a person's ability to move generally in space. And then the converse is, is, is also true. And then I, you know, I think as all of us talked about at the beginning, we've all had experiences in our past where we really chased performance in these symmetrical bilateral lifts. And we've seen a, you know, deleterious outcomes to our movement quality. So I think, you know, of all the paradigms that we mentioned today, that that's probably a particularly useful one. Yeah. Appreciate that. And you know, I, I think that's what we are seeing in the fitness industry, you know, think about where I'm coming from. It's it's all about fitness, whatever that may be. And then you're kind of seeing the swing of the industry, at least in like the, my circle of influence that I'm kind of in the realm of or stuck in, I guess you could say, of like all these people are just like very so hyper focused on like general population clients and testing their shoulder flexion it's like okay well what are we actually doing here you're too stuck in the movement realm and it's like we we kind of have to know that how each one affects each other but what what the outcome is and what kind of pool you have to pick from a little bit more that's awesome michelle and i think it's it's just so cool to see us you know continually evolve having ideas zooming out to see what really matters as well as and i should say it's like a it's like we're while we're zooming out we're also going to the core of it all which is what's happening with the athlete and then kind of cutting out some of the unnecessary things that i think are just tradition that sit in the middle so majorly appreciate both you guys and the time uh you spent to having a conversation with me today i learned a lot from both of you and thank you guys again thanks for having, thanks for having us, Thanks for being with us for another episode. Appreciate you all here. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, whatever you are listening to the show on. It would really help us out and help to spread the word of this show. We wanted before we leave to give one last shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, as well as having an awesome blog and just general resource for sports performance coaches out there. So we will see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.